We're on episode eight question mark. I think it's episode nine. I'm almost sure it's episode nine. Episode nine. It's episode nine. It's episode nine. And Thanks, I think Tanner. at the beginning of episode eight, we call that episode seven. So who knows what's real? Who knows what's imaginary? It's all a mess. Phase five delayed. That's the news today. Yeah. It's September. So much for uh, going to phase five here in Nova Scotia. It's been pushed back to, I guess, early October. What that means for schools and these public spaces and all that, that we're about to be mask off. Uh, I don't know. So we shall see. Which we could say play mask off. Mask off. Uh, we, <laughs> we can't afford the royalties that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Put that out, Tanner. Play mask off. Um, what are we doing today? Actually, what's new? What's What's going on? Um, <laughs> actually no that's a, f- a false leader because i know exactly what's going on you know exactly what's going on in my life not fun um unfortunately some of these things cannot be disclosed publicly quite yet <laughs> <laughs> i love how you're like this is good cop bad cop neil's always up to shenanigans and i'm over here being the good guy um but yeah so just working on some of the multis and some refinances and there's some difficulties being faced yeah once i get them resolved uh, I'll let you know what happened. It's going to be a damn good episode. That'll be a very good episode, but I'll probably lose all my hair between now and that episode. Yeah. So what's going on in your life? Um, well, I've got an offer in on that property that we were talking about that you were suggesting maybe I should just skip and scale up and do something bigger, but everyone likes a little side project. So we'll see if that comes together, that eight unit. And that'd be kind of fun because that would be someone, you know, something to talk about from, you know, day one, right? Yeah. So I'm just doing it for the podcast, guys. I'm buying this building for the sake of the podcast. Imagine just throwing down on an eight unit for the yeah. podcast. What a guy. What a guy. What a guy. It's a um, murder. What are we going to talk about today? You know, we got we got a couple things in mind. We're going to do two big hits. Or maybe two small hits. Small, big. We're going to do two hits. We got two Let's hits. Yeah. I'm talking about the Burr method. Yeah. Everyone likes to throw that out there. Yeah. Burr. B-R-R-R-R-R. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Too many R's. Four Eight R's. Yeah. Um, we'll get into that in a minute. And you're covering? Uh, just general steps of purchasing, because I think we've covered a lot of topics here and glossed over some things that we take for granted that people maybe understand that that they don't quite. I mean, I've referenced Burr before and how it's kind of what everyone does, but someone then branded it really smart. And uh, we should dive into kind of the, the nuance of it for people that maybe don't understand it. And then steps to purchasing. You know, there might be some people listening to this that have not purchased yet. So um, maybe kind of take one step backwards so we can take a couple steps forward with people here. Yeah, I, I think 100%. I, I got some feedback from a few listeners, the three that we have. and um, Thanks, mom. Yeah. <laughs> and that was one thing. They had some questions about even just like the basics. So it makes sense. I uh, need to get a footing before you start running. Yeah. And I think especially because you and I... Obviously, we've bought a lot of properties ourselves, but also we're agents. So we're kind of doing this every day and it's it's almost second nature. And it was funny in preparing for this. I was like, yeah, these are all the things that I do that I now no longer even think about doing when it comes to guiding someone through the steps of a purchase. So should we start with mine? Because I think the Burr model is maybe a little bit more advanced, if you will. And and in order to complete that model, you have to first buy the property. So we can start with start with mine. Start with the B for buy. Uh, Oh, right on. Okay, that's right. So steps to purchasing. The first thing that, uh, the, the first step is to surround yourself with the right team. I, I took some time to really think about what I would tell people to do first, but it really is to surround yourself with an appropriate team. And for me, that's always been um, people that I feel comfortable working with and are inspired by. I mean, so often in this industry, it's referral-based. So clients randomly end up with, a friend of a friend or their aunt or the person that their cousin worked with. And 
in some cases, that person happens to be me. Yeah. And I don't really <laughs> I say what's wrong with that. Yeah, I think that that's <laughs> great. Um, but I know that I always try to make sure that I'm the right fit for that person. And yeah. I really think uh, buyers should be doing that, making sure that there is a fit match personality wise, goal based. But also I try to surround myself with like minded individuals, regardless of what I'm doing. So when it comes to real estate, if I'm thinking about multi-unit properties, I went out of my way to seek those people out. Yeah. I, I think that's something that's undervalued by a lot of people. I made the mistake too when I started. Um, and I realized now that it, it made a huge impact. And I look at some of the best deals that I got. It was by aligning myself with, I guess in this case, if we're talking agents, it was agents that were in that world, understood the game and yeah. uh, were able to help me do it versus you're right. I see a lot of people that get referred to people like, oh, well, I know them through this and this. And like at the end of the day, I pick the property. I do this. I do that. So it's kind of on me. And I'm like, you'd be surprised how much value someone can add to what you do if, if it's the right person and they align with what you're looking to do. Yeah. Like for me personally, my mortgage broker has multi-unit properties. My yeah. inspector has multi-unit properties. My lawyers have multi-unit properties. Uh, the guy who does my sewer is involved in real estate. Like every single person in each phase of the process um, is involved in, in multi-unit properties because that's what my goal is. It's a little bit different if you're, you know, just trying to get started off with a single family home. At that point, I think what matters most is the personality and the comfort level, the rapport that you have, because this is the biggest investment you're going to make in your life. And you need to be able to speak candidly with the people helping you because it's, there's a financial component to it. There's an emotional component to it. And if you can't have a really open conversation with the person that's supposed to be representing you, that is going to be a problem. Um, so I am a believer in personality fit, um, and of course expertise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so goal-based experienced in what you want to do, a good personality fit and, you know, inspiring to what you hope to accomplish. I think if you can surround yourself with an agent and, you know, a support group that kind of reaches above what what you're maybe doing currently, but can be with you through the growth, I think that's the first most important step. So for me, I would probably go broker first and then real estate agent, or would you go real estate agent first and then broker? I would go real estate agent, then broker. Okay. It's hard. I know. Like, I feel obviously biased. Like, well, obviously you should call the real estate agent first, Jeez, but you do need to get your that. money. You need, do need to get your money first. Why didn't you text me that question before we started yeah, yeah. so I could think about that a little? I don't know. Um, on the spot. Yeah. See, the thing that I honestly, I face is a lot of people that come to me that want to get into investing. They tell me, I'm like, oh, who's your broker? And they tell me, and I'm like, ah, like mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's not true. a person that's going to be able to help you grow because like the financial aspect of purchasing is probably one of the bigger, harder parts. And it's really, really important that you have a good person on the broker side yeah. that can allow you to get there. And if you're going in as a green party or someone who's new to it, uh, and then you try to go pick out a broker, you don't even really know what you're picking, to be mm-hmm. honest. That's true. Yeah. Because you don't really know the products and what you're talking about. That's great. So if point. you can go out and find an agent that you know is already doing the business, has you've seen them help other people, then they likely know a broker that also understands the game. Yeah. And I so- think it's easier to get that agent's rapport than a broker's because agents mm-hmm. are very vocal. And everyone can tell you about their agent. Brokers are a little bit, I think, a little bit more behind the scenes. That's true. I think what that suggests, and maybe the answer is, is find the person that in, in the level of the process, be it um, brokering, be it the real estate agent, be it the lawyer, be it the inspector, the person that you are most comfortable and familiar with and think is on the same um, alignment uh, with what you want to accomplish, maybe go to them first and then say, hey, unpack this process for me with the people you work with. Because when someone comes to me, uh, I sort of have this 
in-house team that's already lined up to make sure that's going to be a smooth transaction and that I feel will already be a a perfect fit for them. But if someone has that relationship with a person who happens to be in the mortgage world, uh, being, you know, and because you need to get your money sorted out first, then, you know, I can see going to the mortgage professional first as well. But I guess the person, um, with whom you maybe have the most, uh, natural connection natural Um, connection and knowledge about kind of what their industry is yeah and i always say they're going to give you a referral but do your own due diligence on a referral just because someone sends you say you have a great relationship with your realtor and they send you to a mortgage professional that mortgage professional maybe you know is great for some people but they may not be the right fit for you i even say that when you know someone chooses to work with someone else i'm not going to be the right fit for everyone um and if someone doesn't feel most comfortable with me then i would rather them go with someone that they do feel most comfortable with yeah you know in the rare times that that happens but um (laughs) so that's step one surround yourself with a really good group of people and that's not just trusting that they're experienced it's about validating that they're experienced and you know ensuring that their goals align with yours and that you have a good, comfortable relationship. And people, if they get to, if you're in a situation like, well, I feel like I can't really ask them these questions to see if we're on the same path. It's like, well, there's your answer right there. Right. Yeah. I think anyone that works with me, we can have a very, very candid conversation about um, any part of the process. Yeah. I think that's important. 100%. So step two is what I call the draft of your search criteria. So when you're entering the market as a buyer, you have an idea in your head of what you think you want. Um, Be it room counts, location, amount of work, uh, features of the home, what have you. At the first level, this is like, you know, those with a science background. This is your hypothesis. This is what I think. 15,000 square feet, 26 (laughs) bedrooms. Yeah, I'm open to waterfront, but (laughs) I'm not married to it. Um, I think you have to set this this goal, this objective. Uh, And that's step two, this draft criteria. And this is a good point where you could engage an agent to help refine that. But realistically, at this point, it's all hypothetical, right? Yeah. Um, what do you say to people kind of when you meet for the first time and, and they've got these lists either attainable or, or sometimes unfocused? Cause that can be hard too. Yeah. I think most people are pretty focused. Honestly, I think, I, I think I get the odd person that's like, yeah, I'm game for anywhere in the city. Mm-hmm. I can have a garage, no garage could have six bedrooms, could have no bedrooms. And I'm like, yeah, those are almost harder, but they way the open, but definitely yeah. harder. hundred yeah. percent. Even though they're open, it's way harder to like make a decision. Cause every time you get to a place is like, what are you comparing against? And like, well, yeah. over on that part of the city. But uh, mm-hmm. most people have like the basics down. They're like, well, I mean, there's a f- the biggest ones like bathroom count. Like that's like I think like one of the most common ones. Everyone's like, I need at least two bathrooms because I can't share one yeah. shower with a million people. Um, and then the garage I find is usually a big criteria and number of bedrooms. But most houses for the most part, I have at least three. I have very rarely get someone who's like, I need at least six bedrooms. Like yeah. Um. So there's those aspects, and then there's also like kind of the the. I guess I don't want to say renovation, but the maintenance level. Mm-hmm. Some people are comfortable to get into some maintenance. Some people don't want to deal with anything. Um, but I typically get them to give me their their whole list. And I'll, I'll guide them. I'll usually be like, do you want this, 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 yeah. those main topics I just said. Um, and then I'll ask them for their budget or location, sorry. So what neighborhood, if they're open to a few. And then I'll typically ask them what their budget is. Uh, and you, again, knowing the market very well, I can pretty quickly be like, all right, we just went to this list. That's 500. And then like when they say their budget's three, I'm like. Yeah. That's why I usually get to the budget earlier in the process, right? Because I'm like, what's your budget? Because that's going to drive the area in a lot of cases. And I say, well, what area are you interested in? And then they say, and I was like, well, that's attainable. That's not. And so on and so forth. But either way, at this level of the process, at step two level of the process, all of these ideas, um, the set of criteria that you think you have is just a draft. 
Yeah. Right. Because the next step, step three is data collection. And that's when you go out there, pound the pavement, whatever you want to call it and actually view properties. Right. So the, the, the first thing I always tell people is the challenge is you may think you want one thing, but until you go out there and see these homes, see what your dollar gets you in different areas, you may find that what you think you want changes. Right. Yeah. So when you do these showings and you start com- comparing uh, property over here versus property over there, and all of a sudden you're gravitating to this property for no reason, right? Yeah. They're the same house. They're just in two areas. Well, apparently then location is more important to you than you thought. Yeah. So in the data collection phase, you do the viewings and then quickly reassess your search criteria and try to get a little bit more focused in. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's like, once people say their budget, that's when I typically will be like, look, like you said, some of these are not attainable. And if someone's throwing some like kind of out of left field, they're giving me something random. Uh, a lot of times I'll be like, Hey, maybe have you driven through that neighborhood before? Mm-hmm. And they're like, no. And I'm like, all right, well maybe take a zip out, like drive from yeah. work, like on the way home today. How about you drive yeah. there and see how your drive was? Yeah. Spare me the trip. It, basically. Sometimes it's spare me the that's trip. That's effectively what yeah, it is. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, I've come to realize because when I was new, I would just say yes to everything and I'd go out and yep. it's kind of a waste of everyone's time. Cause I'll like, I mean, a, a prime example for us here is Eastern passage. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with the location. But it is a bigger commute for a lot of people if you're coming from Halifax because there's no there's no direct highway to Eastern Passage. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's brand new neighborhoods there, good prices, some with water views and things like that. Uh, and so a lot of people will be like, oh, yeah, like this is great. Like I can finally get a new home. I can see the ocean, whatever. And then I'm like, okay, we'll drive home from Halifax today and go to Eastern Passage on the way home. Mm-hmm. And then the next day they'll call me and be like, I'm not interested because by the time I got the highway, I then had to spend another 10, 12 minutes yeah. driving into town. Yeah, and conversely, you might have someone that um, – works in Burnside, um, but has lived historically in Halifax and has never even heard of Eastern Passage. And then maybe that becomes yeah. a better fit for them, especially when they're like, man, I can get a fairly new home over here. Exactly. So the data collection phase is about having the showings, reassessing your criteria, and then doing research like neighborhood research, as yep. you mentioned, historical sales, which we're really fortunate here in the province. Those are, are public, pretty well public, but also you're going to lean on your support group and, and your agent about uh, historical sales. And then part of the process, sadly, right now in this market is unsuccessful bids and missing out on on properties. Yeah. Um, and this is why every now and again, a client will say, well, I don't know, there's nothing that looks perfect. And I'm like, we're not going for perfect. Mm-hmm. First of all, you don't have the budget for perfect in some cases, but <laughs> we want to go out there and see the things that you don't want so that it helps narrow us in on what you do want. Yeah. Right. Like you're building your frame of reference. And, you know, even if we think this home over here is not a fit for you for this reason, let's go see it because that home is going to sell. And when that home sells, um, it'll tell us information about the market as a whole. Yeah. Right. Like if you don't like this home over here because it's on a main road, but it still sells for 300, that tells us something about what that home would be worth on a side road. Yeah. It's going to be worth more than 300. Exactly. So I think going out there, uh, going through the process and unfortunately seeing things sell and whether you're bidding on them or not, you kind of take that information, put it in the data bank because our job as a realtor is never to to sell you a property. Our job is to help you collect the information so that you can make an informed decision. So yep. that you as a buyer, when a home comes up, you're like, I believe this to be the right home for me yep. because I have seen these other things. Like there's that expression, you got to slay a few dragons to get to the princess, <laughs> right? You're going to have to see some homes <laughs> that aren't, you know, you know, aren't necessarily fit in order to get to the right one. 
not sure I get the reference, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Neil uh, Binsley, there's, there's a sword <laughs> under the table. Let me tell you. <laughs> and it, okay. Anyways, um, no, that's that's definitely the biggest mistake I would say a lot of first time buyers make. I get that message a lot, where it's like someone's like, "Hey, I'm looking to buy a house." My like, right, sweet, and then like we're, we get through with the stuff, even if they get a pre approval, then they don't they don't like any of the houses that in particular, and then they pick one that they just love and they have to go see. And I'm like. That's a yeah. good, bad thing because like we can get there and like you don't know, you don't know the difference between this and shit. And so when I get, yeah, and, and we get there and I'm like, this is an amazing house. And then I can see that on their eyes, like, is he being a real dirty man? Oh, is he I trying know. to up something? I'm like, no, I promise you, like, this is a great house. Or sometimes we'll get there and it's kind of shit. And I'm like, this is a bad house. Like, this is a garbage house. And, and this is also why we go see them in person. Exactly. Yeah. So I always tell them and I say, look, even if you're not planning to buy for like three, six months, like, if you see a few that you're kind of interested in, just hit me up. I don't mind taking you out for one showing every couple weeks. Because you are need to process that. Because then the day when we get in the house, that you're like, okay, I've seen five. Now I'm confident to bid 100k over ask. Exactly. Because I know this house is good, a good house. Yeah. All the time I tell people, sometimes the hardest thing is when the first one you see is the right one. Yeah. Because you have nothing to compare it to. Yeah. And then you're right in this market. It, there'll be a situation where someone will email me on a Tuesday. Yeah. On a Wednesday, we're meeting at the property. We don't even have time to have our, you know, in-person meeting, which, yep. you know, there's a period there where we couldn't go for coffee anyway. Yep. So you'd meet these relative strangers at a house. Um, you'd walk in there and, you know, we'd leave. They'd love it. And I'd say something, well, it's been really great to meet you. Um, offers are due in three hours and we're probably going to have to be 70000 over. Yeah. And that's a difficult thing, right? So yep. again, part of what would help is when they built their group around them, their, their, their work they're professionals. They and I would have had a chance to connect and build some rapport. But also if we had seen five homes before, yes. um, that can help as well. So again, data collection is about... It helps us find you houses too, realistically. Totally. Because something may, like rarely now, but there may be an off market. Um, and it'll just like when we're looking through the online listings, like I'm like, okay, I know this is something that really bugged them. It wasn't originally said, yeah. but this is something they didn't like. Yeah. So it allows me to be more pr- productive for you. Yeah. I mean, there have been tons of times where people say, oh, I don't uh, I don't mind a little bit of work. And then we go to a place that has like carpet and they're like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and it's like, okay, <laughs> yeah, well, w- we've now learned a little bit about, uh, about ourselves here. Yeah. So step four then is the offer process and the due diligence. Uh, I've kind of put this as one step because they are effectively tied together. Um, once you reach that point where you are ready to make an offer, uh, people often say, well, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. Like, well- you submit the offer, yeah. <laughs> um, and and it's a it's a nerve wracking experience. Um, the nice thing, and what I always tell buyers is that listen, everything in our offers are there to protect you as the buyer. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to outline our, our main things are our terms, right? Our condition terms, our deposit, and our price. Realistically, yeah. th- those are are the main things. Once we have those agreed to, and we submit our bid, if we're successful, we still then have our due diligence period. Yep. Even in this crazy world where people are sometimes waiving one or more clauses, there's typically an allowance in there of seven to 10 days to finalize your financing, do your inspections, review some disclosure documents, and reflect on this purchase that you're about to make. Yep. Um, so you submit the offer. If you're fortunate enough to have it accepted, you give a deposit. Right. And deposits right now in our market, and people are going to laugh depending on where they are. Deposit in our market. What are you telling people now? Like five grand? Five grand. I did one today for 20 grand and I was like, whoa. Yeah. Totally. Whoa. That's a big but, deposit. But it was a million plus home. 
Yeah, so it's different in every market. Um, there's no set rule, but the deposit is important to know is held in trust and it is refundable. So if you, during your due diligence, find something that you are not happy with, you can terminate the deal and that deposit gets returned to you provided you've done that during your, you know, agreed due upon period. due diligence period. Yep. And again, that due diligence is inspections, um, financing, um, lawyer review, disclosure review, and all that. So I always tell people it's like you're agreeing to purchase a car, but you get a 10-day test drive first. Yeah. Right. And at the end of that period, that's when you actually uh, lock the deal in. Yeah. And you don't spend any money. Like, there's no cost. Let's say you terminate the deal. There's no cost for your agent's time. There's nope. no cost even for technically a lawyer at that point. Nope. The only person that you're going to be paying is any inspectors that you employ. Yeah. They that's the only always cost. need to be paid. When they show up on site, home inspector, he's going to charge you. Sewer inspector, he's going to charge you. Right on inspection, they're going to charge you. All those things you have to pay for. Everything else, though, there's no cost in doing so. Um, so it's not like you're about to be on the hook for a ton of things. The inspections can definitely add up though, especially if the house is on uh, septic and well, mm-hmm. you can easily spend over a thousand dollars on inspections all in. Sure. Um, yep. so it's something to consider and you don't want to be willy nilly tossing in offers if you're not truly into the house. But on the flip side, like you said, it, it's a very nervous time, but you need to understand that it's not necessarily like the second, even it's accepted. You, you're not like super tied to it. I always tell my clients, like, if you go home and you're instantly like completely overwatched with anxiety and you're feeling like you made the worst mistake of your life, tell me ASAP. Don't wait till the last day. Yeah. Tell me the day we got, we got it accepted. I'll call the agent back and try and get them to fix things up. That's not a legitimate necessarily reason to get out of a deal, but you're not going to force somebody to buy a home uh, and in again, that kind of situation. I, I think this speaks to having the right people around you yeah. because they need to feel comfortable going yeah. to Neil yeah. and saying, Neil, this is what's going on in my family's life. This is how yeah. this you know, offer has affected us. Yeah. And we feel we can't proceed with this for these reasons. Yeah. Um, and if they don't feel comfortable having that conversation with you, if if th- if you guys don't understand what you're both sides are trying to accomplish here, you know, they're not going to feel comfortable doing that. And then if things are going to get, you know, either they're going to feel an obligation to execute the deal, which yeah. they don't have, or it's going to be some awkward relationship between you because you're like, well, I don't even know why they terminated. Are yeah. these people serious? Are they not serious? We love the home we offered. Now they can't, you know, so again, you have to surround yourself with with good people. And with respect to the inspection, have you ever been asked the question, well, what if it fails inspection? I, very much so. Yes. Yeah. 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 People think it's like a car inspection where it's like it failed and now you can't drive it. Um, home inspection is not that. Every house um, technically fails. <laughs> <laughs> Every house fails a little. It's just how many fail too much. Yeah. No, I mean, no home is perfect. So all the home inspector does and realize that the home inspector works for you. And and the home inspector should make that very clear when they show up that their job is to be there as an advocate and a uh, um, an, an extra expertise opinion for your benefit and for no one else's benefit. Yeah. They're just there to tell you the current shape of that home. Knowing and understanding that no home is perfect, they're going to summarize all of the deficiencies. And some of those are going to be based on code, which code is not applied retroactively unless it pertains to wood energy technology uh, or knob and tube wiring. So these are going to be things that, hey, you know, when your home was built, this was code. Now that wouldn't be okay, um, but it's still fine to be left as is. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's general home maintenance stuff. So if you've never owned a home before, an inspector is going to go around and tell you that, you know, you need to scrape and paint your wood exterior. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you need to keep some of these elements cocked to prevent water intrusion. General things that as a novice, you may not know. And then there's going to be the items that immediately need attention. And these are what you're really going to want to take stock of and assess how they make you feel about the property. Yep. So even having an inspector with whom you can talk more candidly. And this is why I always tell buyers to try to be there for the inspection. Yep. When you get that report, it's pretty 
overwhelming. So usually 30 plus pages. Yeah. And, you know, if you weren't there firsthand or if you've never had an inspection as a buyer, it's natural to feel like, oh my gosh, I somehow seem to have purchased the home, one home on the world that like, you know, it's you completely it falling down. apart. Yeah. yeah. And it's nine times out of 10, not the case. So you want to be able to have uh, an understanding with the inspector of, okay, what here, what is really, um, you know, going to affect the immediate enjoyment of my property. What's something I need to address short term? What's something that you're just telling me because you have a liability concern if you don't tell me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two things with the inspection as well. Hire a professional inspector. Don't. But my uncle like Carl. My uncle Carl. Built a deck last year by did, hand. We, yeah. We <laughs> built a deck by hand. None of it's to code. Yeah. It's on deck blocks. He's coming to inspect the house because he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Or on the flip side, what was I going to say about that as well? Yeah, I think I think like you said, just understanding like that thirty pages. Oh, sorry. Even if you inspect a brand new home, there's gonna be stuff on there as well. Hundred percent. Like it doesn't. It's not. It's really not indicative of the fact. Like Kelly, you said, there's thirty pages. Every house can have it. Really well maintained houses. Well, just the big thing is that first list, which is almost every inspector does. Usually, it's red or it's the first page, whatever it is. Those large items. Those are the ones that you really got to focus on. The rest of things are gonna be really small. Yeah. Kind of miscellaneous. Yeah. Well, pickups. it's like anything else. We always say advice is is free. Yeah. Um, and it's often worth what you pay for when it comes to like your uncle Carl doing the home inspection for you. And, you know, there could be some, if you have people in your life personally who, you know, you really, they respect. do have a high level of expertise and you yeah. do respect them and you think they are the sort of people you want to be surrounded with because they are inspiring to you and, and you are trying to get on their level or whatever it may be. Absolutely bring them into the fold. Um, but just again, be wary of, of who that is. Uh, and then when you get that inspection, you know, you hope that when you write an offer, just to backtrack just a little second, you hope when you write an offer, you have a good understanding of all these material issues with the home. And a good agent can take you there and say, this is what I can tell you about the roof shingles. This is what I can tell you about the window. This is what I can tell you about the electrical panel, the furnace, the heating, the plumbing, you know, all of these things. And our offer should be reflective of this knowledge. Okay. The inspection then is only meant to address items that we were not already aware of. And that materially affect how you feel about the home, mm -hmm. right? So this isn't a chance to be like, well, we knew the roof was old, but the inspector said the roof is old. So like, can we go and get money now? It's like, yeah. that's not really acting in good faith. That's not what the inspection is there for. Yeah. Um, the hope is again, that you would have had that information in advance. Yeah. Um, but if you discover something new, then you have to decide, okay, does the mold remediation in the attic, right? Yeah. This comes up all the time. Attics, if they aren't Very ventilated well. Yeah, you have got a humid climate here. Um, they tend to get a little mold or mildew staining on the sheathing. Now, the attic is outside the living, you know, the living space of the home. Um, you never go in your attic, but no one likes the M word. Mm -hmm. So then you have to decide as a buyer, do how do I feel about this possible mold issue in the attic? Um, do I one want the seller to address it? Do I two want some sort of reduction in price? Or do I three kind of not really care? And I'm more focused on the fact that I got a good deal on this property that I just want to proceed with the sale as is. Yeah. And you as the buyer dictate that, right? The inspection is not pass or fail. It is just here's some more information about the property that you maybe didn't have before and you can make a better informed decision. Number four, you call Rainbow Halifax. We do attic mold sprays. <laughs> That's true. One of Neil's many companies. He'll mow your lawn, sell your used car, and then also Spray your attic. Yeah, yeah. I do them uh, all myself too. So you'll, it'll be me. They'll <laughs> come personally to your house and do it. Yeah. That's full service. Yeah. So provided you get through this due diligence, you know, you've gotten the inspection, there's stuff in there because there's always stuff in there, but you feel like you can live with it or you've gone back to the seller 
and renegotiate and come to terms. Hey, you know, we couldn't tell the age of the hot water tank. It turns out it's 11. That presents some insurance issues for me. New hot water tank is $1,200 right now installed for an electric unit. I want the seller to replace that hot water tank prior to closing. You do an amendment to the deal. Again, this all happens during your due diligence. The seller agrees to it. And now you have all your conditions met. You've got your financing locked in. You've submitted your deposit. You've talked to your lawyer. You've reviewed the disclosure. You've had your inspection. It is now up to you as the buyer whether or not you are satisfied enough to complete the due diligence phase. And once you have, that is when the property is sold. Once you've agreed, I'm fine with my due diligence, my date is here, I'm going to lock the deal in, and the property is sold. Marked as sold at that point, yeah. Yeah, it's marked as sold and put in the system. That's when there's no backsies, right? (laughs) So this is when, anytime during the due diligence, if you just decide that, uh, you know, you don't like the color of the drapes, you can get your deposit back and walk away free and clear from the deal. If on the last day of due diligence, you've locked that deal in, and the next morning you have a, a change of heart, your deposit is going to be forfeited unless mm-hmm. you want to go to court and make things nasty. Mm-hmm. And getting out of that deal may be a bit cumbersome. Push comes to shove, you can probably get out of it, but a seller could then sue you for specific performance, which means they sue you and the lawyer and, and the judge um, gives you legal instructions to execute on the purchase. Um, or they sue you for damages, right? Wasting their time if they can prove that you backing out of this deal after it was locked in is somehow... Um, you know, cause them hardship. You could be liable for that. But I always tell people, trust me, by the end of this 10 days or seven days, whatever our due diligence period that we've negotiated is, you will know everything you need to know to feel comfortable locking this in. And that leads us to step five, which is the preparation for closing. So sometimes, you know, if you write an offer on day one, and then you've got a 10 day uh, due diligence condition period, you may not close for another 30 days after that or even 60 days after yeah. that. So you're kind of twid- <clears throat> twiddling your thumbs. Drink heavily. Drinking heavily, spending all that money that's supposed to be for your down payment. Buying a new car. Um, <laughs> don't do any of these things. <laughs> um, you effectively are preparing for that closing um, by way of you know packing, connecting utilities at the new location for effective to, on the closing date, um, scheduling any any work repairs that you might want to do to the property. You know, you've got to make good use of that 30 days when you're booking tradespeople, because if you've got it in the mind that you're going to have that host painted the first weekend you move in, you might have to book that painter uh, a couple months out. Um, But from an actual practical standpoint, in the days leading up to the closing, you'll hear from your lawyer and, you know, you really won't hear from them until a couple days before the closing because they're waiting to get all the mortgage instructions uh, from your bank. But you're going to meet with your lawyer, sign all the documents, re-sign the mortgage documents that you've already signed with your mortgage professional. And they're going to give you a total that says, all right, you know, here's all the money you need to bring us. Your down payment, um, your property tax adjustment. Closing costs. All your closing fees. And they're going to give you one lump sum total that you're going to go and get in a bank draft and you're going to bring that down to the lawyer. So it's the lawyers on closing that handle all the actual money. I've had situations where a buyer goes, and so when do I give you the money? I'm like, you never give me the money. It all goes through <laughs> through the lawyer. Um, I made the joke about buying a car. Uh, do yeah, not don't take do any credit products between the time that you go firm on that house to the time that you close. Yeah. Because by some chance, the bank could do a credit check mm-hmm. again on you the day of closing or the day before, two days before. That happens quite a bit. And let's say you yeah. went out and bought yourself a new whip to go with your new house. And it's now changed your monthly payment status. They might say, we can't fund this anymore because he yeah. can't make these payments. Yeah, I want to take, don't want to take for granted. Um, like, I'd be like, yeah, don't do anything stupid. But... 
you know, human nature, like, okay, I've got a new house and, and, you know, now we're going to be commuting to work and we go and buy a, a new car. Yeah. Um, you have to be mindful of that because as Neil mentioned, if the bank, for whatever reason, repulls your credit or if you finance the car through the same institution that's also financing the host purchase, they're going to see that it may change your debt servicing ratio and that financing that they locked in for you during due diligence, they may now take back. Um, you were going to say, yeah. I'll continue. I'll let you finish that first. I was going to say, I, sometimes I see this with new construction because sometimes it's like six, eight months for 12 new construction, months 12 months right now. You know, people yeah. are like, yeah, our car broke down. We had to get a new car. Yeah. Um, and you need to be careful about that. That's but just fine. to finish, the other thing that you do leading up to the closing is the final pre-close walkthrough. Yes. So what this is, you know, it, it if, if you offer on day one and you don't move in until 45, 60 days later, there could be a period there of well over a month that you haven't set foot in the home that you're about to buy. Um, and in theory, anything could have happened then uh, during that time. So what you do is you go back with your agent and you do one last visit, either the morning of the closing or the night before sometimes, just to make sure that everything is as it's supposed to be. They've yeah. tidied the home. They haven't damaged the home. Nothing of material nature has changed the home, that they've left the appliances that they were supposed to leave, that yep. they've topped up the oil tank, that they've made that little repair in that one room that they're supposed to do. All of these things, you do that one last visit. It's called the pre-close walkthrough. It's only supposed to be 15, 20 minutes. Um, and then is when you tell the lawyer, okay, we've done our pre-close walkthrough, release the funds. And that way they will release the money over to the seller. Release the hounds. Release the hounds. And usually what happens is um, they'll send those funds over the morning of the closing. Uh, they'll get confirmed over on the other side. There's some back and forth just to make sure things have cleared, courier, et cetera, et cetera. And you close the property. You're usually the official owner around two o'clock in the afternoon. Is that what you find? Yeah. I always have around yeah. two, three o'clock, you own the house. Yeah. And the reason that's important is don't book Bell or Eastlink or whoever it is day. for the same day you move in because they're going to say, we'll be there sometime between nine and five. You'll think that's fine. That's the day I'm closing. I'm going to take the day off work. It's no big deal. If you don't own the home until two o'clock, you can't get them in there. So any of your cable connections, your moving vans, anything that like that, book it for the day after closing. Yes. Right. Because also sometimes there's a delay in the closing, you know, and, and then you've got a problem. Yes. And one thing, actually two things I want to add prior to closing. One thing I'd say is the most common mistake that I see is people forget to have their insurance ready. Even oh even if I yeah. send them an email or whatever asking to get their insurance ready, they almost always do. And your bank's not going to send mortgage funds until there's active insurance on the property. Mm -hmm. So you need to get that. Now, it's not the end of the world because you can call and get insurance pretty well immediately on the phone. Yep. It's getting most, a little bit. There's, there's some yep. hold and all that. Um, but that would be, I'd say, the one item that most people forget. And then, like you're going to say, so on that pre-close walkthrough, in the event that you do find an issue, uh, that becomes an issue for the seller that they have to fix that. Now, <laughs> this market's gotten so crazy, some sellers will be like, go pound sand. I've even had builders say, go pound sand, where we get there and we're missing parts that were agreed upon yeah. in the contract. And they yeah. say, well, if you don't want to buy the house, we'll gladly take it back and sell it for more. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, you've got the rights to the property and the seller has the obligation to sell you. That said, they're still the owner. Right. So this isn't just a slam dunk of the seller supposed to do the right thing in this circumstance. There's a gray area of what the right thing is. Um, more often you see things like, oh, they left a bunch of junk under the deck and behind the shed. Very common. You know, I don't want to have to like throw this junk out. What's it cost to do a couple loads of junk? So you get in the back of this whole thing on the day of closing, like, is it going to be $500 for the junk? Is it going to be a thousand? Is yeah. the seller going to come back the next day with their friend to get the junk? It can get really messy. Um, but these are things that can come up on that pre-close walkthrough. Um, 
So this is where the agents come to play a lot, I find. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, like, we're going to switch topics here shortly, and we're going to take a hiatus because I need to deal with a pre-close issue here. <laughs> um, we're getting late into the day, but there's it's been back and forth since this morning at, like, 10 o'clock or something really material has come up. And so I was like, yeah, we feel like we accounted for that in, in the sale. I'm like, yeah, not to this degree, and now we have to sort this out. Yeah. Um, but you go through this process. You know, the day of closing is meant to be all roses and sunshine. And and unfortunately, sometimes that's not the case. But with a good team around you, you will get through it. You know, this is when you can call the lawyer and be like, you know, push these jerks. Right. I'm not standing for this. And, you know, you want your lawyer on your side. This is where they make their money. And your agent's working behind the scene with the other agent negotiating. Um, If you don't have this rapport, you know, you're going to be feeling like you're you're, you're left on your own here uh, in the final moment. And with that respect to the insurance... To be clear, that should be addressed during your due diligence period. Yes. One thing, though, is most insurance companies will not lock insurance in until it's like 60 or 90 days before the closing. So if you're closing in three months, you're going to be like, yeah, call us back later. And what you're going to do is you're going to forget to call them. Exactly. um, But But, again, your agent will remind you of all these things leading up to close and you'll get it all done. So that is the process. There you go. Boom. Now we're switching. You own a house. You own a host. Congratulations. Congratulations. Now let's turn it into money, baby. Now, now we're um, about to make you some money. Yeah. So that's good for people who kind of uh, want to know how to how to purchase the property. Now we're going to switch lanes to what you can do once you have the property. Yeah. So if we uh, imagine a scenario whereby you've successfully purchased a home, but you've got big plans, you surround yourself with a team that invests in real estate and looks at real estate as a way to grow wealth. Um, what are you going to do with it, Neil? You're going to burn it. Obviously. Burn it, bruh. Everyone burns it. That's what they do. <laughs> they need to add an O at the end. Like <laughs> optimize or bro. option. Yeah, just call it bro. Might as well. Might as well. Um, yeah. So this is, I think, more for the investor yeah. on average. Uh, I wouldn't say it's someone that's just buying a normal home, uh, especially because one of the R's is rent. So, mm-hmm. um, But yeah, this is the Burr method, which has come up a lot. A lot of, I don't know what investor really first started using it, but one of the social media gurus kind of, I think, created this. Uh, I'm going to go over a quick thing for the buy. It's a little bit different. Um, then what kind of channel went over? Cause again, this is for yep. an investor. Um, so everything he said still applies. Um, but if you're buying a rental property, there's gonna be a few more due diligence items that you might want to go over. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if it's a house that's been converted into multiple units, you want to try and get a confirmation that it's a legal, uh, multi-unit house. Yep. Cause a lot of people will convert homes without getting the permits and going through those steps, which could screw you down the road. Cause if you go to do work to it and the city comes in and says, Hey, look, this isn't actually a legal three unit, you could have to re- revert to a single family home. Yeah, which obviously also affects the value. And with the Burr method, part of your due diligence early on and, and part of your data collection is about what is it going to be worth when I'm done? Exactly. Right? Like that's the whole process. Exactly. And and so that's why I said the most important part is this buy. And I say in that, you need to be able to identify if the next three R's are going to work. Yeah. That's what you're doing in this step. Um, so typically in this, I, I mean, you get better at as time goes on. It's a little bit difficult at first. Uh, and I find it's almost even more difficult on some of the smaller properties because it's based on comparables, mm-hmm. which in a lot of markets, some people don't have. It's exciting now because it's very easy to get comparables because the amount of transactions that are taking place and the dollar values that they're happening at, it's almost, you can almost always find a comparable that's worth more. And to be clear to people, like a comparable is, uh, a sale nearby that validates or supports or determines, in some cases, the value of your subject property. So I think my home here can be worth this because the comparable home down the street sold for that. So that's what a comparable is. Exactly. 
And so, yeah, so that's, that's a big one. And in the buy for me, most of the time I'm looking for, okay, so if this is what I'm buying this at, the rents are below market, it's this many units. You want to make sure that there's a comparable at that higher end value that you're looking for out of this. Um, and you want to factor in your cost to get there, mm-hmm. right? So even yep. though you might be buying a duplex for 300 and the neighbor sold for 400, like I'm getting the best deal ever. It takes you $150,000 to make it look like your neighbor's. Yep you're not, you're actually paying 50 grand more than your neighbor did. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's being able to kind of address those items. Uh, there's so much in the buy. The buy is such an important the buy is part. Everything. The buy is absolutely yeah. everything. Like you, you can't win in this game if you're making bad buys or if you're overpaying. If you talk to any flipper doing this, the way they make money is on the buy. The 100%. work is going to be the work. And, and if anything, the work's going to go up. It's not going to go down. Yeah. Where you're going to make money on is the buy. And a lot of that research is that you're going to do yourself. But again, what I've said many times before, surround yourself with a good team that understands your goals and can walk you through these values. Because if you're doing this for the first time, yeah, you don't know how much it costs to renovate. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice to have an agent and an inspector that you trusted enough that you could have a good conversation with to say, how much is this going to actually cost? And they say, I don't know. I've never really done a project and I don't rent the properties and you know, it's not going to help you. So Yes. And I will say, even if an agent does give you numbers, I mean, you may want to validate them. Trust, uh, but verify. Trust, but verify. I, yeah. I get sometimes I get frustrated when my clients don't believe me because I'm like, this is what I do all day. But I totally understand it because I've talked to some clients where they're like, oh, yeah, we went to this place and he said it's only going to cost 70K to get it up. And then we and then we go there and I'm like, 70K per unit or like this place needs everything. Yeah. Um, and they're like, no, 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 the whole place. I'm like, you need this. Is why it's good to verify but maybe bringing in a contractor. And a lot of them will be willing to come in and, and give you a rough idea. They may not give you a detailed quote, but they'll be like, look, it's going to cost you 100 grand a door to get this done. Um, so yeah, that, that is major, major league important. Um, the other item is for this, depending on how far you're going with the rehab, if it's more than just like, let's say paint coat and some cupboards, if you're intending to add units, that's another thing that you really want to make sure you're confident on before you get into the property. Zoning actually I'm coming to find everywhere is quite intense. Like really, Mm -hmm. whether you're in the States, you're in Canada, zoning is very intense. So you want to make sure when you're buying the property that you have, okay, you say you want to put in a basement apartment. You got to double check, triple check with the city, whoever is the governing body for that, that you actually can. Because I've seen people get them and we thought we could, they could do three units and a backyard suite because their neighbor has one. Yeah. That means nothing. He, he could yeah. have done it illegally. He could have done it 30 years ago and grandfa- got grandfathered in. You got to make sure that today you can actually do what you want to do with that property before before you buy. You do that during, during your due diligence. And this is often why rental properties have longer due diligence, due diligence periods. Because mm-hmm. they have to get confirmation that they had a certain amount of units, totally. and that can take a few weeks, and then they want to get confirmation that they can do what they want to do. That can take, that could sometimes take months. Yeah, which is challenging right now in this market where the seller's going to say, well, I could go with your offer that has a three-week due diligence period, or I can go with this offer here that has a one-week due diligence period. So yeah. in, in a competitive market, um, you know, it, it can be riskier um, to, to try to shorten up your timelines while doing all this and covering yourself. So you yep. need to build in some cushion to your exit strategy of, okay, if all things go poorly, am I still going to be able to come out the other side of this thing? Exactly. Exactly. And and then I think, yeah, being being realistic on your numbers, because I think a lot of times I go into these places with guys that are getting started out and like, oh, I can rent this for $4,000 a month. And I'm like, there is one unit in the neighborhood that is rented for 4000 a month and it's over rented. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to bank on that. And if the market were to pull back at all, where are you going to be with this place? Yeah. 
right? And be honest with you, even if you get it there, sometimes the bank's not going to accept that. They're going to do a market rent themselves and say, we don't think that's actually the right rent. Unless you have a couple of years showing that you have that, they're not going to support that on their valuation on the back end. I think maybe if we take just a tiny little step backwards for a second, the whole objective of this model when done successfully is that you put money into a property and when you're finished by way of a refinance, which Neil is going to explain, you get all of your money back that you put in and then maybe a little bit extra. And you get to keep the property. And you get to keep the property. So this is why... You know, we're talking about what is the end goal and, and what is the exit strategy and why are these numbers so important? It's because you're taking a leap of faith that if you put in, say, $20,000 for the down payment and $60,000 for renovation and you're tying up $80,000, that at the end of this, you're going to get every dollar of that back and hopefully then some still on the property. And the reason you want that is because then you can take that same money and do it again. Right. Exactly. So that's why how this differs from just buying a home and taking pride in your home and sprucing it up and enjoying it and making it better. That's what people do over here. And, and they're investing in real estate, but in a very small scale. The Burr method is for people who the whole point is to do this once purely so then you can do it multiple times. And if you can't get the lift, which is a term you'll hear all the time, then you can't get your money back out, which means you cannot do it again. Exactly. Yes. I kind of skipped over that because I always just again assume everyone's heard. Yeah. The Burr method, they understand the main concept. But again, I guess this is why we're explaining it. So 100% to what Chandler said. um, And when he says get your money back out, that is on a refinance. So when you get your Mm -hmm. final mortgage based on its end value, that money, subtract everything you spent, you should be able to pull your money out. Um, That, so this is, again, with that, the basic math, it's it's basically very basic math that you're doing running into this. And you should be able, Mm -hmm. like you said, is have big buffers. Right. So if you're buying for 300, you're expecting to spend 70. Say you're going to spend 100, if not a little bit more. And your end value, you're hoping that that end value comes out uh, a bit higher than what you need it to be to get your money back. Now, when I started, I always wanted it to be that when I was buying it, it's 50% of my end value uh, with even my renovation. And that was because the market wasn't that hot. You mm-hmm. could pull that off. There were places that had the opportunity to do that. And what that meant is I, a lot of times I was pulling out 20% of the end game value on top of my down payment which allows you to pull forward very fast realistically that's not much not as much the case anymore so you need it's more likely to come out around 70 to 75 so give us some hypothetical numbers so for example if you bought a place for a hundred thousand you put in a hundred thousand so you're in the whole thing for 200 grand i would want the end number to be four hundred thousand so the end value based on what you have all renovated and completed and rented is now four hundred thousand and for number's sake, we'll say you can borrow 75% of that loan to value. The bank would then give you 300000 So you'd get back, you'd pay off the whole 100 of the original mortgage with the home and mm-hmm. your down payment, yep. which the down payment would come back to you. The renovation, we'll assume you did in cash. So you get that 100000 back. Mm-hmm. Then the other 100000 would also come back. So now you'd have all your money plus hundred grand, plus you'd own the property with $100,000 of equity. Yeah. And I mean, that's a really beautiful, extreme, extremely successful case Yes, on something that might be a bit more conservative. If you perhaps purchased a property for 200,000, yeah. right? You put $60,000 into it. So you effectively owe 260,000, but at the end it's worth 400,000 yeah. and you refinance at 75% loan to value. Even though you might get 80% loan to value. Yeah. That's 300 to 320 K, yeah. which means you're getting all your money back out that you put in plus whatever the difference is. Yeah. 40 K. So, and you own the property. So it's yeah. like, all right, I spent 60,000 out of my pocket plus my down payment. So call it 
75 grand. Yep. I've got all of that back. Plus I've got this nice little 40 thousand dollars extra yep. now i have one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars to do this again on the next property and a bit of rental income yeah exactly hopefully it cash flows it um so yeah so that that's again going over the buy that is the number like one thing is just making sure that your buy is very strong running your numbers and not i find some people are so keen to get in that they they push the numbers to what they want them to be it's like yeah. well my budget's coming at 150 but i'm not going to pull that all out so I can just cut this out and cut this out and it'll be down to 120. And if I, I saw that they had these on sale, so I get them for this and they'll squeeze their rental yep. budget down and they'll try and make all the numbers like really, really good. And then they're like, well, I can probably get the appraiser up to here and get the rents up to here. That If you got to do that, I always say, if you got to, if you got to like force it to make it work and you really got to squeeze the numbers, not a great one, especially not to get started on, right? Yeah. If you already own a bunch and you're just kind of adding it to your, to your inventory, yep. not a big deal. But if you're trying to get rolling like that, that's not a good way to get started. Yeah, totally. And you have to be kind of say, all right, what is my goal? Do I need to hit a home run on this? Or am I happy just getting my money back? And, and then if you get your money back, then you've effectively purchased that property for zero money down, uh, which is in itself a pretty good, you know, uh, investment. Yeah. Um, so you have to be realistic about what your goals are and temper your expectations and have someone that you're consulting with that can guide you. I mean, I always tell people I'm very you know, I'm happy to take risks with my own money. When it's someone else's money, I'm a bit more risk averse, yeah. right? So I tell them a bit more conservative numbers. And if the market goes your way, like you can imagine people who bought investment properties either, either in 2019 or even in parts of 2020, like how well they would have done with this model just based on what happened in the market. People did not see that coming. So plan for the worst, um, you know, and maybe that's just getting your money back with a little kicker, um, you know, and moving on to the next one. And if something better happens, that's great. It's a win. Exactly. And now what, what I'm typically looking for in these, obviously on top of the actual numbers, the type of buildings, I like stuff. And I think most people in this market are ones that are mismanaged and ill-maintained, assuming the price matches. So, right. You don't want to go in and buy a building that someone's already gone in and cleaned up a bunch and get good solid tenants at market rents. There's no lift there. You're unable to make that lift because you can't necessarily increase the rents. You can't add value to the units. Uh, So you're kind of stuck at that value. Um, You really want to find places where the rents are under market, assuming, again, that you're paying the price based on those current rents. Yep. You got to avoid what's called the romance of the wreck, right? Where you see a wreck property and you get all these grand ideas about how nice you're going to make it and it becomes a passion project. People overpay for the romance of the wreck. You have yeah. to be very pragmatic with this. And you can't, you know, you, you want to find these properties that you can clearly see the path towards the end. Like you can visualize the goal. It is worth this now. It is going to be lifted to this here. Yeah. And then what do I have to do to get it from there to there? Does that make sense? Will I get my money back and then some to move on to the next one? Yeah. And then within, again, at the end, we're going to spend a lot of time on this buy because, again, the rest of the stuff is fairly straightforward. This is where the importance is. I say there's two categories within these mismanaged properties we see some that actually aren't in bad shape they're just under rented because the person's had them forever mm-hmm. and they just don't care like you you could go in there and probably do nothing besides paint and increase all the rents by 10 percent or 15 percent yeah uh and then there's the others where it's like no nah, this place needs full guts like it's it needs everything new and that that's a whole different game but they're they both offer the same opportunity and i was actually in one yesterday the six unit where they're just all under rented. They're all very under rented. And I was telling my clients, I said, look, you guys come in here, you put down laminate, you paint the place, you can get all these rents up by three, four hundred bucks yeah, a you month. Manage it. Manage you the literally just manage yeah. the building. And by adding today and adding four hundred dollars a month in rent, that's like adding almost seventy five thousand dollars a unit in value. 
So right off the hop, they're going to be able to pull forward. Now, they're not necessarily going to pull out a big, big lift out of it, but in about 18 months, they'll probably be able to pull out their original investment, uh, maybe a little bit less, but they'll own the property and they'll have the mm-hmm. equity within it. It'll cash flow and it's a good step forward. Yeah. And I think we're kind of using this interchangeably to speak about small single family homes and larger multi-unit properties, yes. because as I mentioned before, this is the same thing people have been doing for years at every level of the market. Yeah. Um, so you know, if it's a multi-unit or be it a small scale or, or a large multi-unit, a lot of the lift can be had by management and, you know, rent income stream. If it's a single family home, you're limited essentially to what you can do to that property, in which yeah. case the buy is also heavily reliant on, like you said, the comparable sales. Yeah. Right? Like what's going on in the area. And it's old cliche of, you know, pay for location and buy the worst home on the nice street and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the, exactly. These two are very, yeah. So- Four or less units on average, they're looking on a comparable comparable basis. Like mm-hmm. your neighbor sold for this, yours is kind of worth this. After that, that's when rents and cap rates and things like that become very important. Yeah, uh, It's almost easier in some ways, though, because it's really math-oriented and it's not complicated math. Once you build your spreadsheet, you can almost reapply it to everything. Yeah, we're going to do the ultimate guide to cap rates here soon yes. on the podcast. We'll get, we'll get deeper into that. Um, but again, on broad scale, basically, you want to get places that you can increase those rents, but you're not paying a big dollar value for something that doesn't have the rents yet. And a lot of times, honestly, you can't because the appraisal just won't come in to justify paying for it. Right? If it's only getting 500 bucks a month, they're not going to give an appraisal that's so high. So you wouldn't be able to close that deal anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing you always want to make sure you do when you're buying something bigger is get environmental on the purchase. <laughs> <laughs> also a future episode. Also a future episode. We've had some interesting ones on that. Um Anyways, so that's that's the buy. There's still some more other stuff that we can get into, but again, we'll get into it here in the in the different next steps. So once you've completed the buy, now the next step is rehab or renovate. Mm-hmm. And this is where you're basically, you're adding value. You're spending yep. money, you're adding value, you're making them better. And you, this is, again, you, you bet that you have a good team around you. So not like your agent, your broker, but also contractors. Very yeah. important. Because if you just go out and hire the fanciest GC that you can find... Yeah. Uh, yeah, they may have a great Instagram, but they're going to charge you 200k to renovate a unit, and then you're going to have no ability to make money on it. Yes, it might be beautiful, but there's going to be no lift left because they took the lift. Yeah. So you need to be conscientious, and you need to find out. You need to GC, especially getting started. You have to GC everything. You have to pick out each of your independent sub trades. You've got a price check, and you got to verify. It also doing might it. help if you know how to swing a hammer. I mean, my first couple properties, I was in there because my hourly rate you know, was, was low enough <laughs> that it uh, made sense for me to be in there putting down laminate, doing trim, doing tile. I also, um, because I was, you know, a bit, bit skeptical, I wanted to know what was involved in all of the labor so that one day when I was paying for it, I understood what I was paying for yeah. and I knew the trade-off. So, you know, early on, I did a lot of that work myself and it's where some people find their competitive advantage. If you are handy and you can do some of these things that can help with those numbers, because, yep. you know, when I give my clients these numbers, I would say, this is the yellow pages number, which yep. some people are like, what, what are the yellow pages? But like, this is the retail yep. price for these things. Yep. So if you can go out there and do some of this work yourself, you're going to better the retail price. So I'm going to give you the high end number. You do it for less than that. That's more money in your pocket. Exactly. I, I 100% agree with that because and it's hard if you're not from that industry to understand what things cost and people can easily pull the wool over your eyes and you're like, wait a second, I've done that. It only takes 40 yeah. minutes. And why am I getting charged 1800 bucks? Yeah. Um, so yeah, learning cost is extremely important. I think the other thing to consider is when you're doing the renos, 
what actually impacts your ability to rent the unit mm-hmm. and to get good rent dollars. Yeah. Because some people are like, oh, I'm going to put gold plating on the outside of the building. And I'm like, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I yeah. was like, as cool as that is, I was like, I want to see the gold building. I want to be a mm-hmm. part of the gold building. Yeah. I'm not going to pay any extra rent to live in my unit because the outside's yeah. gold. Uh, I have a couple like that where like sometimes, oh gosh, I wish I could do something else to the exterior, but it's not going to raise the rent. Right. No. Like, like you have to be careful, like what you do for passion projects, you know, um, and, and what you're actually doing and running this as a business. Yeah. You got to consider what's going to get the, the big ones. Like right off the hop, the thing that I always push everyone onto is bathrooms. Mm-hmm. If you're, if there's a female renter coming in there, they want to see a clean bathroom, not to stereotype anything like that. Guys on average are kind of like, yeah, there's yeah. a, there's a, there's a hole in the ground and then there's a spot for me to rinse off. Okay, sweet. Um, I, I might, I might only use now. one of those. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, like a female renter is going to be very serious about that. And some males are too, but that's a really important item. People want to feel comfortable in their bathroom. And so if the second they're in there doing a showing and they're just like, this is a disgusting bathroom. Yeah. Right. The huge turnoff right off the hop. Um, obviously hard surface floors. I think that's old news now. Like almost yeah. everything is hard surface floor. Uh, kitchens I find make a huge difference as well. Of course. You can also do kitchens really economically. And this is where the experience starts to matter. Yes. Because maybe you don't need all new cabinets and boxes. Maybe you can get away with painting a new countertop and a backsplash. Like you have to know your demographic for that particular area. If you do quartz countertop in an area where people don't know what quartz is, like it's not going to affect the rent. Right? Like, so you have to be is mindful. Is that a dig? No, no, that's not a dig. <laughs> but a I dig? love that that is kind of, uh, that was not intended to be a dig. Um, Neil just has got a great deal on courts. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> you need to kind of know who your target demographic is. You need to know what is a smart spend and what isn't. And you need to um, be mindful of what the pricing is for the stuff. It's also why, and again, coming back to the buy, um, what can you salvage from the existing property? That's always key. The last thing you want when you're doing this method is to get into things like windows and roofs and heating systems. Because not only are they expensive, but just like the gold plating on the outside will not get you more rent. Um, The brand new roof shingles are not going to get you any return. Windows tenants like them, but let's be honest, like they don't want to, they're not going to pay you more money because the windows are better. So if you can find a place where um, some of these big ticket items uh, that aren't fancy, but are really expensive, are already done, that's a place where you can get good lift because then you're going in minimal investment, cosmetic stuff, and just elevating the property that way. Yeah. Right. And I mean, it, you don't need to go to an extreme. I actually went to the extreme. I took this this exact thing to the extreme. I just never did any of the exteriors of my buildings. Like, I just kind of kept them basic and they look kind of shitty. And I look back and I'm like, you know what? Like, I could probably squeeze a bit more rent out of these mm-hmm. and get better tenants if they looked a little cleaner. And now I'm going back and fixing a lot of my exteriors. But Paint's your friend. Paint is your friend. Also, exteriors, I find, don't matter a whole lot with rent, but yep. they can matter with quality. appraisal and quality. Oh, like, yeah. um, Because, you know, again, this gets back to cap rates a little bit, but your rents are going to be what the rents are. Um, but when you're talking to your appraiser about pushing the value, yeah. it helps if your home looks nice from the outside, mm-hmm. right? You can say, well, listen, this is a nicer building. It deserves a lower cap rate. That front picture on the appraisal report. Totally, right? Like it, it, it does help, but that's not going to change your cash flow month to month. No. Um, but it could impact your refinance down the road. Exactly. That's yeah. why I say be economic with the outside. I've Now I'm doing a lot of siding painting. Yeah, I, I totally. find that's a great way to do it. It's like, oh, yeah. siding $40,000. Eh, I'm going to pay it for $7,000. Like, yep. You know what I mean? $5,000. Um, but yeah, so it's just being smart about what you spend the money on and, and you, you can reuse a lot of things. 
I again, I'm going to say it again. Paint is your friend. Like there is oh, a lot man. of stuff you can paint to make look really good. Highest and best return. Yeah, Easily. all day, Easily. all day. And if you're doing stuff yourself, you can, you can, everyone can paint a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. So you get the rehab done. You're all finished up your renovation. You're super happy with it. Now you got to get it rented out. Look around your neighborhood. See what things are renting for. I always say go after top rents. Yeah. Right off the hop. The my big reason is once someone lives like once you're done the reno, that's the nicest that unit's gonna be until you reno it again. Mm-hmm. So get a rent get somebody like get the top rent in there because once you get someone in there and you're like, oh, I'll raise it next year, I'll I'll get the next person I'll raise it on. You're gonna go do that, and this person's gonna move out, and there's gonna be all sorts of nicks and dings and yeah. some cabinets are gonna be off and things are gonna look a little bit mucky, and you're like, ah oh, crap, I can't get a top rent anymore. Also, like know what's going on in the rental market at the time. Like right now, there is a shortage of housing. Uh, the vacancy rate is super, super low. So you might be able to start marketing the property before you're even done. Yeah. Right? Like there's that shortage of inventory here right now. And that also means you can put a test price out there. Yes. Right? Like say you know that you're 60 days out, but maybe 70. So realistically, you're three rental months away from occupancy. Yes. Right. Why not put your rent out there at 1800? Yeah. Right. You run that for 30 days. If no one snatches it up, which they probably will because of the, of the market, then you could still lower it to 1600 and, and have 60 days just to, to rent it. Um, yeah. But to Neil's point, like that unit is as nice as it's ever going to look. Yeah. Um, you know, so why not capture that with a typically a better tenant who's going to care for it um, go for gusto at at that time yeah and at the same note get the appraiser in around that same time usually before someone moves in assuming it actually looks pretty nice yeah because it's there's a good chance it could get worse as time goes on so you'll want to get the appraiser in early also it's good to get the appraiser in a bit early because you'll come to find out that those steps take time uh so you don't want to wait until okay now i've got everything done it's fully rented it's sitting there mm-hmm. now i'm going to start the process of refinancing and getting the appraisal and all those other items mm-hmm. uh so in this step here even though refinance is technically the next step you actually want to be starting it like mid near end rehab because well, you also want your money back asap exactly right? like you're you're at this point you're hemorrhaging money paying for all these things and whether you've got that on line of credit whether you've got that on a purchase plus improvements mortgage which is maybe something that we can talk about here just really quick when yeah. you buy a property for two hundred thousand dollars you can get forty thousand dollars worth of quotes for example and take that to your bank and say i'm buying it for 200 but i also want 40 grand to renovate it yeah. um because you need to finance these repairs some way be it purchase plus improvements, or you can go and set, take a separate line of credit, or you have to cash flow it. Yeah. Um, so either way, you're going to want that money back as soon as possible. So the earlier you can get it turned over, um, the better. and this is also one of the things I learned when I was trying all these things myself and getting myself familiar with, you know, what is involved in laying flooring and, and all the stuff is, um, my time is also worth a lot. Like if it takes me three months to do to complete the project, whereas I could have outsourced it and it been done in one month, um, that's two extra months of rent, right? Like, so you learn these things through doing, but you need to be mindful of your time because you want to get it refinanced quickly so you can capture that equity, pay yourself back, get some extra lift, and then hopefully buy another one. Exactly. Regarding the renting, we'll go more into, we'll probably end up doing a thing on just like getting good tenants, mm-hmm. the process. I think we kind of talked about it before a little bit as well. It's everything we touch on really. Yeah. Like it's about renting. Yeah. yeah. So, but I mean, at the end of the day, I think the biggest one for me is like I said, is go after top rents. Also, if you have a fairly big multi-unit, you'd be even not necessarily fairly big, but it goes a long way. It's like 50 bucks a month. If you do it on five or six units, you might yeah. be surprised how much it bumps your end value. Cap rate episode coming up soon. Exactly. It's going to be the Again, cap rate episode will be good. So anyways, you get it rented out and then we now we kind of already transitioned, but refinancing, 
again, that's something you want to start, I'd say, earlier than actually having the property rented. A lot of times, a bank will give you an LOI, a letter of interest saying that they're, or a letter of intent that they're going to, they'll fund you at a certain percentage, assuming your appraisal comes back good and you meet those rents, mm-hmm. right? So they're like, you can already kind of know your numbers before you're even done. You can know your numbers on the buy, actually. You can get, when you purchase, you can get an as complete appraisal done at the same time. I frequently do this and that yep. allows me to finance my construction money. So I'm buying, yep. saying I'm buying at 200000 I already have an appraisal telling me that if I do what I said I'm going to do and rent it for what I said I'm going to rent it, it's worth 400000 The bank will be like, okay, we will finance your purchase, plus we'll finance your renovation. Yeah. And that's essentially how that purchase plus improvements um, uh, method works. Like the appraiser goes there and says, okay, show me what you're spending these 40, this 40 grand on. Yeah. Right. And then they assess, okay, well, when you do that, the home's going to be worth this and they feel good about it. It gets more important when you're doing larger scale product projects because it's big time money and you kind of want it up front so you can finance these things. Yeah. So, so you can pay for these things. Sorry. Exactly. Purchase plus is kind of your basic getting started one. And then as you get more into the, into the bigger ones and more cost based, it doesn't necessarily have to be a bigger project though. They will do smaller projects. Uh, they can do a lot of financing on your renovation. Mm-hmm. Which and they can do it in draws, so they can give you sections as you go along, so you're not having to hurt. If it's going to take you more than four or five months to get it done, you don't have to wait until you've done everything to get the money. That's they true. will yeah. give you your sections along the way. Yeah, that's um, huge, and that is huge. And that was major for me. That was like an enormous thing. And most people ask me, like, "How are you buying these buildings and doing all the renovations?" And I'm like, "Look, I'm buying it knowing the end value, mm-hmm. and the bank's giving me the money to do the renovation. Yeah. So I'm not really feeling too much out of pocket. They might want to see twenty percent of renovation done by me." Mm-hmm. So every draw, they might give me twenty thousand. I got to spend five thousand. Yeah, right. So it's not so bad, and it allows me to keep going, and it makes it a lot more feasible for you. Because a lot of people see, okay, crap, I got to put down twenty five or twenty percent on this house, which is eighty grand. Then I got to spend another eighty grand. I don't have one hundred and sixty. I have a hundred. Yeah. yeah. Right? Or even if they're starting off with five percent down, they're like, you know, I got to put fifteen down, seven grand close. That's twenty two, and you're telling me it needs forty grand work. I don't have sixty. Right. Uh, so these programs, again, talk to a good mortgage professional, understand your options from your realtor, your whole team. People have done this before. You can do it, too, but you need the right advice. So you've bought the home, you've rehabbed it, rented. You've got it rented, and you've refinanced it because you had the refinance. appraiser come in yep. and say, this is what it's worth now, or this is what we knew it was going to be worth when you completed it. Yep. What happens now? So now you get your cash. You get it. That's a fun time. It's a good day. You can either you go to your lawyer's office and you pick up a refinance and you see your down payment, potentially renovation money, and potentially even more sitting there. Mm-hmm. It's a very exciting time. Yeah, it's also like there. It's relief as much as it is inside. It's relief that you got through it. You got your money back. So you know if you scrimped and saved every dollar you had and it was eighty thousand or one hundred and twenty thousand, you know, or maybe it was only. 22,000 of your money and then 40,000 of someone else's or the bank's, you know, to see this line item that says, hey, just so you know, that renovation thing is paid off. Yeah. Um, the existing mortgage is paying off. We're putting this new one on there. And here's the simple net out of this check that we're going to cut to you um, right now. It, it represents so much too. It's like, look, I went through, I, I'm proud that I went through the whole process. I now am rented. The project's done. Like it just, it represents that the accumulation of this entire process, which sometimes, well, a lot of times will take at least six months, yeah. if not a year, yeah. a ton of hard work, sweat, tears, stress. Uh, it's just, it's completed. So it's an exciting yeah. time on top of the money. You're just like this huge satisfaction of like, I got this done. Well, as you and I talked about in an early episode, like we like the creative aspect of this. Yeah. And this is like when you finish a puzzle and yeah. you put that last piece in, yeah. it's like, it's done. Yeah. It's it's working the way it should work, yeah. right? Because you've bought something that's underperforming in one way or the other, and now you've you've brought it back to life. 
Exactly. Right. And, you know, and you've housed people there. And yes, there's always this thing about, well, you've unhoused some people to serve a different market. Yeah. But it's nice when you are able to give people keys to their new place and they're pumped to be there. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's a lovely thing. Exactly. And it's tax free. And it's tax free. Yeah. So now you have your refinance check. You book a one-way ticket to Vegas. Yeah. You go to the first roulette table and you slap the whole thing on black. Yeah. Once you've doubled that up, <laughs> you book another one-way ticket back to your hometown. And you buy and, two. And you buy two. No. But in all seriousness, repeat. That's the last star. It's yep. repeat. That's why the whole process is trying to be expedited, fast, smart about it. And you're likely doing this because you want more. But on that same note, I see this as a mistake that a lot of people make. The second they get that check, um, they're just all over me. Like they like there's three duplexes left on market. And like we got to see all three of them. And I'm like... The reason they've all been on there for 180 days is because they're absolute hot garbage. Mm-hmm. And like, no, 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 no. Like, I want, I got, I got to get, like, and they're just so. Well, what is the repeat? The repeat is to start back at the buy. And we talked yes. about how important that is. None of this works if you did not get a good deal to begin with. Yes. In fact, the opposite problem happens. All your money is stuck in the property that you can't get back out. So this yeah. is why I tell people all the time, exit strategy, exit strategy, exit strategy. Yes. Tell me like, if you're going to bring a property to me. Because people bring properties to us. What do you think of this? What I say, just tell me the numbers of how you're going to get all of your money back so that you can do it again. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So again, when you go to the repeat, just think about everything we talked about in the buy. Take your time. Go through all your numbers. Work with your team. Don't rush into something just because you have a bunch of cash burning a hole in your pocket. But you know what? I also say do celebrate. Like whatever your little Heck thing yeah. is, get yourself a little something, right? Like if you want to get yourself something that was whatever, it depends how big it is. But if you want to go for a big fancy meal, do celebrate that. Celebrate the wins, man. You got to celebrate go for the a wins. Trip. I was bad for doing that. I never celebrate the wins and you start to lose the ex- excitement and flavor. Yeah. It just becomes part of the process. But take a little bit off and be like, this is a reward for my hard work uh, and get yourself something. Yeah. Treat yeah. yourself. Treat yourself. <laughs> so All right. And then you repeat. Yeah. So rewind this back, start it again, do it again. Yeah. So put our podcast on repeat constantly get fired up watch it looking in the mirror pumping yourself up exactly thanks for listening check out our other stuff please let us know if you have any questions or things you'd like us to cover yeah get engaged yeah you know let us know yell at us on tiktok i love that love that all right i gotta roll i gotta sort out this issue that happened at a pre-close so applause me out here tanner (laughs) 